Welcome to our pro bono podcast. I'm Brianne Martell, a shareholder in the Seattle office and a member of Littler's Pro Bono Committee. We're celebrating Pro Bono Week this week, and we're very excited to share with you stories from our attorneys about pro bono work they've been doing this year. I'd like to welcome Nicole Lefebvre, an attorney in our Austin office. Nicole is the pro bono liaison for our Austin office, and she's been doing some pro bono appellate work in the area of criminal law. We'd love to hear about what you've been working on, Nicole. Well, Brianne, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for inviting me to share my experiences working on pro bono work. I'm really excited to talk to you guys today about what I've been up to. So um, I'm working on an amicus brief in the United States Supreme Court on behalf of a nonprofit called 8 Million Stories. And we are filing our amicus in a death penalty habeas appeal from the Court of Criminal Appeals here in Texas. And uh, that was based on ineffective assistance of counsel, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So backing up just a little bit, the applicant for habeas in this case is named Terrence Andrus, and his attorney was my legal writing professor in law school. She has a solo practice where all she does is accept criminal appeals on an appointment basis. So Texas courts across the state appoint her to represent individuals who have already been convicted of crimes in their appeals. So last summer, she took Mr. Andrus's case all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, arguing that he had received ineffective assistance of counsel in his death penalty trial. And the Supreme Court agreed with her, agreed with Mr. Andrus, and sent it back to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. So just very briefly, how the legal standard works is that when you make an ineffective assistance of counsel argument, there are two questions. One is whether the assistance of counsel was deficient, whether there was deficient performance rendered to the defendant, and then two, whether that deficient performance prejudiced him. So the Supreme Court decided that Mr. Andrews did receive deficient performance of counsel, but they remanded it to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals to determine whether that deficient performance prejudiced him. So the second piece of that question is what is still being litigated. So our original amicus brief was filed on behalf of our nonprofit client, 8 Million Stories, in the Court of Criminal Appeals last fall. It was actually September 11th. I remember the date very clearly, obviously. And so we were arguing, well, to back up, the question before the Court of Criminal Appeals, as I said, was that whether this um, deficient performance prejudiced Mr. Andrus. And the standard on a death penalty case for prejudice is whether one juror would have, in a reasonable probability, voted to spare his life because death penalty juries have to be unanimous. So if one juror out of the 12 had said, I don't think he deserves the death penalty, I think he should have life in prison, then he should be granted habeas relief. The Court of Criminal Appeals, with um, they came out with their opinion over the summer at some point, and the opinion is openly defiant of the United States Supreme Court. I have referred to it as basically two big middle fingers up to the Supreme Court. It's bizarre. There is a um, dissent opinion that is also pretty brazen, but admits that you know they're bound by what the Supreme Court said, that, that there was defective performance on behalf of this attorney. So we are now going back up to the Supreme Court to ask the Supreme Court to grant relief once again, because the Court of Criminal Appeals has said resoundingly that Mr. Andrews's, the deficient performance he received was not, did not prejudice him. 
So that's where we are. We're, we're in the process of completing another amicus brief on behalf of 8 Million Stories, and we're recruiting actually additional nonprofit clients here in Texas and hopefully across the country to um, raise the profile of the amicus brief just a little bit so that the court gets the sense that this is a, a broader issue than just this one defendant. And that uh, cert petition is due today. Actually, Mr. Anderson's cert petition is due today. Our amicus brief will be due 30 days after the cert petition is docketed. That is so interesting, Nicole. Thank you for your work. So 8 Million Stories, tell us a little bit about that nonprofit and you know what their mission is. Yeah, great. Um, so 8 Million Stories is a nonprofit that's based out of Houston. And it basically exists to break the school to prison pipeline. So they provide young adults with education services, job skills training, career exploration, and even employment opportunities to help them stay out of jail, to help them from being recidivists in the criminal justice system. And a big portion of the argument that we're making on behalf of Mr. Andrews or in relation to his case in any event is just the preeminent importance that the mitigating evidence that would have been presented to the jury in his death penalty trial how important that would have been to a juror to learn and to hear and how 8 million stories exists as an organization to sort of prevent the story that Mr. Andrews lived. And, and Mr. Andrews, his, his background, he grew up in a uh, very difficult environment and he was surrounded by drug use and drug selling and gang activity and, and those types of things. So the, Absolutely. That's, the, that's the type of mitigating evidence that you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. If I could just read briefly from the Supreme Court's opinion. Death sentence petitioner Terrence Andrews was six years old when his mother began selling drugs out of the apartment where Andrews and his four siblings lived. To fund a spiraling drug addiction, Andrews's mother also turned to prostitution. By the time Andrews was 12, his mother regularly spent entire weekends, at times weeks, away from her five children to binge on drugs. When she did spend time around her children, she often was high and brought with her a revolving door of drug-addicted, sometimes physically violent boyfriends. Before he reached adolescence, Andrews took on the role of caretaker for his four siblings. And that's really, Brianne, just sort of the tip of the iceberg for Mr. Andrews' story. And none of that evidence was put before the jury. And not only was that evidence not put before the jury, his attorney didn't even go out and look for it. So it's a pretty shocking case. Yeah, that's that's really troubling. And I'm so glad that his case was, you know, picked up and, and argued so that he could ultimately receive, you know, more effective assistance of counsel. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think what's important about this case is that if the criminal justice system is really going to be the shining beacon for the world, if we're going to hold it up, as a model for other countries across the globe, that it really needs to stand for justice and the rules need to be applied and they need to be applied evenly. And what I learned as I was doing my research to write this amicus brief is that the school to prison pipeline disproportionately affects certain groups in this country. It disproportionately affects children of color it disproportionately affects male children. It disproportionately affects children living in poverty. And so 
I think it's important that we raise that issue so that we can have some small step in, in trying to work to correct it. Absolutely. Do you have any tips for other attorneys who might be interested in getting involved in pro bono, whether it's something similar to what you did or some other type of project? Yeah, uh, you know, I think it, it's hard because it's hard to make the time to do pro bono work. So you really need to find something that speaks to you, that speaks to your maybe fundamental sense of fairness in my case, or, or whatever interest you have that you want to use your skills to fix or to further a certain cause. There are a lot of opportunities out there, but you do have to be proactive in searching them out. I would say with Littler specifically, you know, using your pro bono liaisons in your office, that is one great place to start. And then I think just carving out the time is really the most difficult piece of it because we're all so busy. That's very true. Um, And I think having the passion for it is so important, just like you said, so that, that you remain committed to it, just like you did. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Nicole. We're really inspired by your commitment to pro bono work. Please look out for other podcasts this week to celebrate Pro Bono Week.